are visiting, this is a series of talks out of, uh, not talks, messages out of Ephesians, and um, we've arrived at the end of Ephesians chapter 4, and we're beginning Ephesians chapter 5, and uh, I've just really, in my own life, enjoyed God's processes, it's just been ministering to me as I've been preparing week after week, and uh, oh God, do so much in me, and I really trust that something of, of uh, the joy of that will come morning as I share. Call it walking as children of light, just because that's one of the scriptures that we're going we're gonna to read. And I said last week, and I want to kind of try and tie in what I said last week with, with what I would like to say this week, that um, Paul's arrived at Ephesians chapter 4 with Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 as the basis for everything that he's about to say in Ephesians 4 and 5. And uh, I said last week that the first Three chapters are the, are the backdrop. He's painted with these great big bold strokes of theology and he's encouraged us in our salvation and he's encouraged us in the power of God and the supremacy of what Christ has done. And then at chapter 4, there's this change where he starts to talk to the church and, and talk to us about how we should live. And he says, in the light of all that Jesus has done for you, this is how you should live. And the great call of, of the New Testament is that we live holy lives not out of moral um, not out of being commanded morally, but because of what Jesus has done for us. And that's the great delight of, of the gospel. And that really is a small little hinge, but it, it opens an incredible door of freedom to you and to I. Because the, the Bible is not a book of ethics about how you should live. The closest thing in the Bible that is a code of ethics is the Mosaic law, the old covenant, the Mosaic law, but it's not the gospel. All right? It's not the gospel. It, the gospel completely fulfills the law, but the law is not the gospel. And uh, you know, in a sense, the Mosaic law does appeal to pagans because it appeals to a sense of right and wrong, but it's not the gospel, right? The New Testament never begins addressing pagans about how they should behave, non-Christians. It's not interested in how non-Christians should behave. It says, the New Testament says, non-Christians need to be saved. <laughs> the world needs a savior. And the New Testament is very interested in how Christians should behave. And how, it's what I, the phrase I used last week was the supernatural transformed community of the church. There are some characteristics that characterize that New Testament uh, church. And there's a, there, there is some things that Paul says are signs, they are characteristics of, of a changing community and things that you valued before you don't value as you go forward and how you lived in the past, you don't live like that anymore because God's transforming you by the power of His Spirit. And those things are not what motivates you anymore. And so that's why Paul says, speak the truth. Speak kindly to each other. Get into the habit of showing kindness in the church. I mean, surely that is a sign of a transformed spiritual community. And so there's some... I want to come back to this little word of therefore, because that's the hinge, isn't it? It's the hinge that Paul is speaking about, saying, in the light of all of that, therefore, this is how you live. In the light of all that Christ has done, in the light of this magnificent salvation, in light of the fact that you are saved by grace, this is how you should live, therefore. And there are a great number of therefore moments in the Bible. There's Romans chapter 12. There's a great therefore moment there. Therefore, in the light of God's mercy, offer up your bodies as living sacrifices. There's another one in 1 Peter. And that's what the gospel, that's what the New Testament does. It always puts the gospel before us and it says, work out what God has already done in your life. 
In the light of what God has already done, work it out here on earth. And it never plunges into commanding people morally and saying, I command you to do this. I just want to start by saying that there are a couple of false ways that, that um, moral living or godliness is, is, is uh, communicated. And it's good that we're aware of those. The first thing, the most obvious way, I, I think, is by non-Christian people or pagans, if you'd like, is to simply assume that you can be good by trying hard enough. It's simply to assume that if you just exert enough willpower, you can live a good life. And if you can, uh, I'm sure you can recognize these, we have endless appeals from politicians and charities and all these kind of things about appealing to people just to, just to try to, to be a little bit better and so we have less asbos and we have more kind of moral conviction in society. Let's just try a little bit harder. Well, that's not the gospel. And then there are others that add threats to those kind of things. And uh, they kind of try and bring morality by fear. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean, fear is an amazing motivator, isn't it? So even the Mosaic law appealed to fear. Because it said, basically, if you commit adultery, we'll kill you. That's what the law says. That's what Moses said. Commit adultery, you're stoned to death. That, that, is, that is quite a motivator to not commit adultery. And... Even in parts of the world right now, that still happens. Where, if you disobey the law, your hands are chopped off if you're a thief. Or, if you have a, a baby as a single mum, the baby's taken away from you. There's still loads of places in the world where that actually still happens. Fear is added. That's not the gospel. The gospel doesn't ever motivate people from fear. All right? Thirdly, some appeal to logic. The intellect. All we need to do to make society better and for people to live good, upright lives is educate them. So we'll just teach them and we'll appeal to the intellect and say we'll debate a lot and we'll talk about it enough. And we talk about it enough, people will see that surely the right way to be is like this and they'll start behaving like that. And we live in a culture that loves to talk about stuff all the time, over and over and over and over again. And I believe we should talk, but that's not the gospel. And even in the church, there are false ways of teaching godliness. And here are some for you. Some just say, if you have an experience with the Holy Spirit, that's a mystical kind of experience of holiness, automatically you'll just become holy. And then you kind of, you're holy. And sin is no longer a problem in your life. Well, the unfortunate truth is that many people have spiritual experiences and they still battle with behavior in their life. And there's not real change. Others say, that uh, you should just preach fearful sermons. So if we emphasize repentance enough, you know the old turn and burn kind of motivation. Just emphasize repentance. Just emphasize that you need to change. That uh, unless you come to God, there's some pain for you in your life, all that kind of stuff. The problem is that that doesn't really produce change. And all that results is that preachers have to endlessly appeal from the pulpit over and over and repeatedly again and again, calling people forward to repentance, calling to them to change. It doesn't really produce change because when the preacher stops doing that, people just fall back. It's not the gospel. What about perfectionist teaching? In the, in the 18th and 19th centuries, there was an emphasis on perfectionistic teaching about holiness and that God has really eradicated sin altogether and that if you are in Christ uh, under grace, you're not going to sin at all. That's not really honest at all, is it? 
And then there are perhaps those that uh, would say, well, the best way to become holy is just to withdraw from society altogether. And so in church history, we've had the monks who kind of did that. Nuns, they withdrew into these communities where they separated themselves from the world. And then in that sense, they tried to live holy lives where they weren't affected by this world. Well, you might say we don't have that anymore. Well, we, some communities still do that. I used, uh, when I was a student, I visited America and went to Pennsylvania and visited some Amish and Mennonite communities, and that's exactly what they do. They have withdrawn from society. They live like it's the 18th century. And they've cut themselves off. But what is this? that's not the gospel. The gospel says we are in this world, but we're not part of this world, and this world needs to change by the power of Jesus, by the power of the gospel coming in us and transforming us, and people surely will see that we're different. That's what the world needs. So all those things are not really the gospel. All those things are false teachings of how to live a godly life. The Bible always starts, the New Testament always starts with the therefore. Therefore, in the light of this great salvation, this is how your life changes. And I just was reflecting on that, that Paul in Ephesians 4, he comes down to this one little point and he says, everything depends on your relationship with Jesus. The fullness of what I'm talking about depends on pinning everything on Christ. That's what it's about. Jesus, the fullness of Jesus in your life. And I would just wrote down some things from chapter 1 and 2 just to remind myself of what Paul has already said. And this is what he said. You've been blessed in every spiritual blessing in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1. You've, you've been chosen before the foundation of the world. You are been chosen to be holy and blameless. You are, are predestined to be adopted as His Son. Every single one of us. Predestined. He's freely given us His grace. We've been redeemed through His blood. Our sins are forgiven. We are in Christ. And He's given us the seal of the Holy Spirit. That's a little summary of chapter 1. That's what He said, I've already given. This is what I've given you. Chapter 2. We were dead in our sins, but now we are alive in Christ. By grace we've been saved. We have been raised in Christ and seated with Him in heavenly places. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ to do good works that He's already prepared in advance for us to do. We're no longer aliens. We're not strangers. We're not enemies anymore to God, but we are citizens. We are fellow citizens in the family of God, the household of God. And as Gentiles, we were once completely alienated from from, from, from God, but now in the new Jerusalem, uh, in the new, in new Israel, the church has made all things new and he's brought us together. And he says through the church, I'm going to make known to powers and principalities the manifold wisdom of God. That's what we already learned from chapter 1, 2, and 3. And then Paul says, in the light of all of that, all of that stuff, just remember, therefore, in the light of that, I urge you, therefore, to live a life worthy of your calling. He's urging, he's pleading, he's not commanding, he's saying, in the light of all of that, you see that and you have revelation of that, then let your life change. And I was just reflecting uh, that the book of Colossians does the same thing. You read some of the letters, they, Paul has, he adopts the same kind of logic, the same kind of thinking. Chapter 1 of Colossians, we know we are in Christ, our faith is in him. It goes on in that chapter and says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, of the Lord Jesus. Keep your eyes on Him. Keep in step with Him. Show that by the, your life as you walk in step with the Spirit that you are 
living a life that is worthy of your calling. Verse 13, it says there's a new kingdom. It's Jesus' kingdom. Jesus, the Lord of all creation, He's a new kingdom, and we are in that kingdom. He's the Lord of the church. He's dealt with our past, reconciled us to God. We are, our future is certain in Him, and He's got a plan for our lives. We should all go, Yoo! Yes! God, you've done all that for us, and there's a future for us, and a, and a plan for us, and you've, you've, that's all secure. Man, it's wonderful in the light of that. Live a life worthy of your calling, all saints. The light of all of us. So surely, surely good preaching, surely all preaching should be about the supremacy of Jesus. The supremacy of Jesus, the fullness of Jesus. And I, I've been really struck by Colossians 1.28, which says, Him we proclaim. We proclaim Jesus, the mystery of Jesus. This is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what we proclaim. So every blessing that we have as Christians comes from the life that we draw from Christ. Every blessing. The big beginning of our life is because of Jesus. That it's in Him. It's rooted in Him. We are planted in Him. Any fruit that comes in our lives is because of Him. Jesus is all we need. And so that's why Paul, when you read the letters that he writes, he's so zoned in to say to people, every one of us, whatever obscures Jesus in your life, flee from that. Legalism, free from that. Circumcision, got nothing to do with anything. Philosophy, intellectualism, flee from those things because they obscure Jesus and Jesus is what you need. And he says your traditions, your laws, all that stuff is done. Our home is in heaven. We sang this morning. Isn't it beautiful? Our home is in heaven. We have a destiny that is sure and secure. And Paul says flee from all that stuff. Anything that obscures Jesus to you fullness of all you need is Christ. And in the light of that, he says, therefore do not walk any longer as the Gentiles walk. Walk as children of light. And so last week, I just want to tie it in. Remember Paul says, put off the old self, put on the new self. Remember we looked at Romans 6, what, what God has done for us, and now what we do for God. Paul says all that stuff that was part of the old self, the behavior that was associated with the old self, put it off, put on the new self, the new thing. The new self that is created to be like God in righteousness. That really was like just such a mind-blowing thought for me, that the new self is created to be like God in righteousness. And Paul says, put that on. And we had a look at that transformed community. But Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Speak the truth. Don't steal, but work hard so you can be a blessing to others. He says, get into the habit of showing kindness to one another. And remember I said this, 41 another's in the New Testament. God is just not interested in talking about love in an in a, in a abstract way. He says, no, you love one another. This community, you be gentle with each other. You get into the habit of showing kindness to each other. You are generous to each other. It's always worked out in community. It's not just kind of these philosophical kind of moral things. Oh, we just generally just love. No, we love one another. We are kind to one another. 
because we are the body of Christ. And that behavior is fitting for those that are holy people and a royal priesthood called to be his. And so now Paul moves on. I'm getting to this portion we're going to read this morning. Because now he kind of, he's talked about those five things that we looked at last week. But now he, he talks about some general things that were problems in the ancient world. And as we read it this morning, you'll see they're pretty much problems of the modern world as well. <laughs> and he says this in verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness, that's greed, must not even be named amongst you as, as, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. It's amazing. It's like Paul, it's like he doesn't even want to mention these things. He, he kind of is, doesn't even want us to think about them because they're so loathsome. They're so inappropriate in a sense be amongst us. And just like last week I said, Paul doesn't talk about uh, truth in a philosophical way. He, he makes it part of a Christian understanding. In the same way, he addresses the things here in a distinctly Christian way. Again, he doesn't say about sexual immorality, he doesn't say, well, guys, you know, if you live a licentious lifestyle, you're going to get sexually transmitted diseases. And, you know, when you have sex with multiple partners, what you really need to do is to wear a condom because actually if you don't, you're going to get, you're going to get ill. He's not interested in that. Oh, he doesn't say about greed. He doesn't say, well, you know, actually you need to realize that if you are greedy and you just get all that you can from the economy, in the end you're harming yourself because the economy can't keep going. So sow something back into the economy. Be gentle. He doesn't say that. He's not interested in that kind of thinking. He just zones right in. He's not interested in the church being a moral kind of guide to, to the whole of the world, in a sense. He's not really interested in that, Paul. He brings things to a very distinct thing of how we should live as Christians. He's, he's saying there's a uniqueness to Christian lifestyle. He's saying that it is unique, and he appeals to this all the time. He says it is a unique way of living because you are children of God. That's why you behave this way, because you are God's holy people. In the light of God's grace in his life, in our lives, that's why it's appropriate that we behave this way. They urges God's people all the time to flee from those things that are going to be. And he puts them all alongside each other. Immorality, greed, ugly talk. Like he says, with coarse speech, he says it's inappropriate that your joking hurts other people or is, your joking is careless. Your joking is vulgar. That's what he's saying. It's in, inappropriate for holy people to be talking like that. He's not whacking anyone with a stick. He's just saying, in the light of what Jesus has done for you, no, no, don't talk like that anymore. That's not a supernatural transformed community. Uh, surely this is. Let your talk be full of happiness and thanksgiving. That's what he says. He goes on in that portion and says, don't let your joking be self-centered and hurtful to others. No, no, let your talk be full of thanksgiving. Is it God that God doesn't have a, a sense of humor? No, he does, but he's saying whatever's hurtful to other people, don't joke like that. No, it's, not, it's not appropriate. Okay? <laughs> and then Paul goes on 
And he does bring a warning here. Well, this, is, this is very interesting. He says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that's an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. No inheritance in the kingdom of God. So we have to, we have to kind of think about this a little bit. Because is Paul saying, is he saying that our salvation is not sure? Is he saying if we give in to sin that we lose our salvation? I don't think so. No, I don't think so at all. Because Paul is mentioning this. If he didn't think that Christians could fall into sin, why would he actually mention it here? It's not logical. Why would he actually say this if he didn't think it was possible for Christians to fall into sin? The clue to what Paul is saying is in his language. And look what he says. He says, it's all in the present tense. He says, no one who's sexually immoral or greedy. Present tense. Now. No one who's an idolater. Now. At this present moment. Has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. He's not saying that Christians can't fall into sin. He's not saying that it's impossible to be restored. What he's saying is that if you are living a lifestyle as a Christian, which is full of greed and immorality, the fullness of your inheritance, of what God has for you right now, you cannot enjoy it. That's what he's saying. He's saying you can't enjoy it now. If you're always angry and you're always bitter and you won't let God deal with those things in your life, the fullness of the inheritance that he has for you, the blessings that he wants to lavish on your life, you can't enjoy them. That's what he's saying. So if our talk is hurtful, inappropriate, it blocks something of the fullness of God's blessing in our lives. And you know, David said the same thing. If you look at Psalm 15, verse 1, amazing thing that David says, he says, O Lord, who will dwell on your holy hill? He walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue and does not do evil to his neighbor, nor takes up reproach against his friend. David is saying the same thing. He's saying it's impossible to dwell on God's holy hill when, if those things are just sin is part of the equation. So Paul is talking about our inheritance here. He's saying, no, what the fullness of what God has for you now in the present time, right now, right now, the fullness of that, don't let disobedience rob you from that. And then he does point towards the future in verse 7. He goes and he says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God, the anger of God, comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness. I love the language here. You, not just you were in darkness. You were darkness. But now you are light. Not just that you're in the light. No, you are light. Walk as children of light. And that's his great appeal. Walk as children of light. So what is Paul saying? He's saying, yeah, no, there's some, the fullness of God's blessing in your life now that you, 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 we can enjoy. Don't let these things rob you from the fullness of God's blessing in your life now. And then he's pointing to the future. He's saying, yes, actually, there is a day of judgment coming. There's a day of judgment coming, and God's anger is going to be poured out against sin. Absolutely certain of that. And those things like greed and sexual marriage, the things that, God, that he's just mentioned, he said, those are going to be purified out of God's world. And we won't have those things anymore. But what I want to make absolutely sure this morning is that we are rooted in this fact, is that Paul makes it clear that Christians, true Christians are saved from the anger of God. 
Save from the wrath of God. For example, 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10. Wait for the Son from heaven to be raised from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath, the anger of God. Right? What about Romans 5 verse 9? Since therefore, there's again a little therefore. Since therefore we have been justified by His blood, much more will we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. The anger of God. For if we were enemies and we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Is Paul contradicting himself? No, he's not. Romans 8 verse 1, There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's settled. Once forever. Secure eternally forever. So what does Paul mean in Ephesians then? In verse 7. He's talking about the anger of God. Well, when you look carefully at it, he's saying this. He's making it quite clear. He says, the anger of God comes upon the children of disobedience. Right? So Paul is saying, we're saved. If, you, if you've uh, come to know Christ and you've come to faith, you're saved. And uh, you have a new position in Christ, which is secure once and for all. All right? But then he's also saying that if we continue and we are partakers with wickedness, and he uses that phrase, with sons of disobedience, we can expect something of the anger of God on our lives as well. He's saying that. On all those that are disobedient, there's something of the anger of God. So what does he mean then? How do we make sense of that? Well, if you look at 1 Corinthians 3, verse 15, there's a clue there. Because it says this. It says, if anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss. He will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved but as one through fire. So there's the clue. And what is Paul saying? He's saying that we are saved. He's saying the righteous have a share in, in the secure future. But we do experience the anger of God in that something is lost. Something of our inheritance is burnt up like a fire. But we are still saved. But what he's saying then, just as he's saying in the present you can lose something of the blessing of God because of disobedience. He's saying, in the future, the reward that God has for you in heaven, the fullness of your inheritance, you can lose something of that on that day. And in that way, you experience something of the anger of God because He had so much more for you. And it's like we sang about the wedding feast of the Lamb this morning. It's like you just come into the wedding feast and God wanted you to be at the head of the table and actually, you're actually right over here. You're still in heaven, but you're at the back and you're waving at the crowd because there was so much more that God had for you. Amen. That's what he's saying. I hope that you feel secure. And that's what I would love to know, that everyone would feel secure this morning, that our salvation is not undone because of sin, but Paul is saying we can lose something of our reward. We can lose something of the blessing of God in our lives, the fullness of what God has for us because of disobedience. And that's why Paul says, in the, he carries on in verse 7, and he says, Therefore, there's another therefore there. In other words, in the light of the fact that you can lose something of the fullness of your inheritance, do not become partakers with them. Don't become like a son of disobedience. And then he says this beautiful thing. He says, for one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful to speak of the things that they do in secret. So here, 
He's saying again, he's appealing to us. He's saying, hey guys, come on, look, see man, there's been a radical change in your life. You once were darkness, now you are light. You belong to Jesus. Jesus, the light of the world, and as a result, because you belong to him, it's not like you just were in the light. You are light. You are light. Just as Jesus is the light of the world, you've been transformed. And then he appeals and he says, walk as children of light. He's asking us to be who we are. He's saying, you are light, be light. It's the therefore again. The light of what Christ has done. You are light, now be light. Walk as light. Don't miss out what God has for you here on earth and in heaven. You're a son, you're saved, that's sure. But enjoy the fullness of what God has for you. Enjoy the fullness of what God has for you here on earth. Don't let disobedience rob you of the joy of the fullness of what God has for you. And then Paul goes on and he describes what light looks like. He says, light, the fruit of light is found in all that is good, all that is right, all that is true. Isn't that beautiful? He says, well, that's what light looks like. You can describe light. Light is everything that is good, everything that is right, and everything that is true. And so what happens is that in this new community of the church, this transformed community, the spiritual community, when there's light, it's reflected in goodness and kindness and sweetness to other people, and we start to see those things bubbling in a transformed community. And it's seen in righteousness. What is righteousness? Righteousness just means that we're integrous. We're integrous in our relationships, in our dealings with other people. That's what light looks like. It results in truth. It results in openness, that we are not, in all of our dealings with each other, we're not hiding anything. There's no darkness. There's nothing hidden away. No, we, we are light. We are open. And then, as he's concluding, Paul, he, he adds one more detail. and He says, find out what God's will is. It's part of our journey as Christians, isn't it? Always been saying, Lord, what's really on your heart? What do you really have? What, what is the future? What pleases you? What, what do you like? I want to give myself to that. And Paul says, that's what we should do. And I want to come back to where I started and say that actually that's found completely in the fullness of the person of Jesus. As we seek him with all of our hearts, that becomes plain. That becomes obvious. And then Paul says, lastly, he says, at the end of this, as he's concluding this process, he says, that's what makes us distinct from other people. That's what he really says. He says, um, take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. What he's saying is this, that there is a difference between pagan and, and Christians, and that we do, you know, there are ugly things that produce fruit, just as there are good things that produce fruit. And Paul's saying, those that don't know Christ, the fruit that they produce is birthed in themselves. And he's saying, the fruit that is birthed in you as a believer doesn't come from yourself. Nothing good that comes from us, but it comes from the life of Christ that is in you. Everything that is good, everything that is pure, everything that is lovely, everything that is noble, produces the life of Christ in you. Jesus, the new self. You are light. Walk children of life. So my appeal is very simple this morning. As we look to the future and as we start to continue to walk with Jesus this year, as we trust that God would transform this community that we are part of, transform this church, that it really is by the power of His Spirit as He learns, as we learn to hear His voice, 
as we learn to respond from that place, even what we celebrated this morning, the new thing that God is doing with, with Nick and Glenda is a response to the Spirit. It's, it's, it's not so easy just to have everything mapped out and say, I mean, that's not faith. And this is the walk of faith, isn't it? It's completely a walk of faith. We don't know all the details. But we know that our home is in heaven. We know that Jesus has saved us. We know that he has a future for us. We know we are secure in that. And our, yes, we struggle sometimes with sin. That doesn't disqualify us from our future. We don't want to be robbed from what God has. And we press on. Fleeing all those things, we press on by the power of the Spirit in us. And he's transforming us from the inside out. From one degree of glory to another. And it's an adventure with him. And we celebrate it. And we go forward. And we encourage people along the way. And I love the picture of those stairs that we had during the worship. And we climbed the stairs just this just as Talk said, we climb the stairs and we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses and they're all saying, come on, come on, come on. You're going high in God. You're getting there. Come on, come on, come on. Not because you're trying hard, but because Jesus is leading you by the power of His Spirit and you're just walking with Him. Walk as children of light. You are light. Don't let the devil say that you're dark. You're not dark. You are light. You are light because Jesus the light is in you and you are light and you be a light to the community. You'll be a light to this world. You'll be a light to this nation just by being yourself. Amen.